Joining us today, we have Dan Dawson, Assistant Professor of Atmospheric Science in the Department of Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences at Purdue. So welcome, Dan. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, we're both very, we were very excited that you were going to have time to do this. And uh, it, uh, I know uh, we were hoping to get you a little bit earlier, but getting you in the spring is not a time that we're going to get you. <laughs> yeah, being a storm person. That uh, and so it's. I guess I'll have you explain that you know, kind of what you research, so that people will know why uh, the spring is a, a. If you have free time, you're out chasing something. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, um, uh, my uh, area of research is uh, essentially uh, the dynamics of uh, severe thunderstorms and tornadoes, and I do a combination of. Uh, I use a combination of tools for to study them. Uh, my main one that I use most of the time, most of the year, is uh, computer simulations uh, and uh, analyzing the output of uh, computer simulations to understand different aspects of, of storm behavior and tornado behavior. But um, I also uh, do uh, quite a bit of uh, um, observational data collection. So I've been involved in different field programs. Uh, I was involved back in 2009-2010 uh, in the Vortex 2 field program, which um, was a very large multi-institution mobile program to essentially chase storms and tornadoes and study them with a whole array of instruments. Um, <clears throat> the original project, Vortex, was, by the way, Vortex, it's an acronym. We love acronyms in, in, in atmospheric science, um, but it stands for the Verification of the Origin of Rotation and Tornadoes Experiment. Um, and the original was in 1994 to 95, and that was back when I was in high school. So I wasn't part of that. But uh, Vortex 2 um, was in 2009, 2010. And most recently, since I've been at Purdue, I've worked with the Vortex Southeast field program, which is a similar program, um, somewhat different in that it's not uh, up until possibly recently, it's not really NSF sponsored, but it's a NOAA directive from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, but the, the goal is to study um, severe thunderstorms, potentially tornadic thunderstorms in the southeast U.S., um, where uh, certain um, signs point to there being somewhat different environments that are um, uh, more frequent in the southeast U.S. Um, that are conducive to tornadoes than the ones the, that we're used to in the Great Plains and even in the Midwest. Um, and so we're studying how those environments, how, well, how they differ how the storms that form in them differ from their Great Plains and Midwest counterparts, um, and uh, how well we can, um, whether we can improve the predictability of those uh, types of storms. Southeast U.S. tends to have um, a larger proportion of their tornadoes tend to occur at nighttime and occur from um, linear convection systems, convective systems, instead of discrete um, rotating storms called supercells, which the vast majority of tornadoes form from. They also get those in the southeast, but there's more, a greater proportion that come from these sort of, um, these uh, basically squall lines with circulations embedded in them. Um, they tend to be weaker tornadoes, but they also, like I said, tend to come at night when it's hard to, um, when warnings are maybe not heated because people are asleep. There's also a much higher, um, uh, percentage of uh, manufactured housing, um, which is very vulnerable to tornado um, damage. And also a lot of these tornadoes tend to occur in the cool season, um, early, very early spring, maybe even over the 
the uh, winter time. So those, there's different, it's a different climate regime. So we're trying to learn how things may change, maybe different down there and what kinds of uh, observations and techniques we need for forecasting that may not, um, whereas the more traditional techniques may not apply as much. So what kind of data are you collecting? If you're researching these in different areas, what type of data would is important to a scientist like yourself? Oh yeah, so there's all, the short answer to that is anything we can get um, for these storms. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, that's kind of flippant answer, but the, the a longer answer is that um, we need data on the, the flow field, the flow patterns in and around the storms. Um, uh, thunderstorms that produce tornadoes or thunderstorms in general are, are highly three-dimensional structures. There's updrafts, downdrafts, lots of horizontal um, patterns, rotation, you know, vortices, uh, shear. It's, it's very complicated. And to understand it, we need to have very uh, high resolution observations of the wind field. The only, um, the only tools that we have that can really do that the, uh, on the scale of the storms and over an entire storm system are, are Doppler radars. So we need Doppler radars at very close range. So they need, um, it's, it's hard if you have a fixed site radar, like the one we here have it here at Purdue, um, the extra radar, um, you have to wait for the storms to come by, right? And mm -hmm. so if you wait long enough, you'll get some, and that's great, and you can learn a lot. But um, for this kind of work that we're doing, we need to be able to take the radar to the storms. So we put these on trucks and drive them out there and set them up and let the storms go by. We usually have strategies so that one radar is looking at, at the storm from one angle and another is looking at it from another angle and their scans are synchronized. So that we can get a full two to three dimensional view of the winds. Um, we need observations of the microphysics of the storm. So by that, I mean the cloud and precipitation fields in the storm. So the, the rain, hail, snow, and so on that, that are falling out of the storm. Radar can provide those observations um, my particular niche has been putting these probes, instrumented probes out in the path of storm that sit on the surface. So we call those in situ. They, they're actually, the probes are designed to go inside the storm and measure directly inside the storm. These are surface probes. So they're kind of like, you know, smaller weather stations called the pointable um, in situ precipitation stations or hips. Um, during Vortex Southeast, uh, collaboration with uh, OU and NSSL, we built four of these um, and still have them. Actually, they're sitting in my garage right now because we need them. Uh, because of this whole COVID situation, um, uh, they were going to go back to, to um, OU early in the spring, and that was right as the lockdown was happening, travel bans. So haven't been able to get them back yet, but they need to go back there for maintenance, and they use them in hurricane intercepts as well. Okay. <laughs> Um, these, these probes have all standard weather instrumentation on them, so they have what you might expect on any, you know, regular old weather station, uh, uh, wind speed, direction, barometric pressure, relative humidity, temperature sensors are all on there. They also have a GPS and compass, so we know, so we can just put the, the probe down, we know, know which direction it's facing, where it is, from that we can calculate the wind direction. Um, uh, and uh, from from the direct, from the compass heading, and uh, relative to north, 
but all, the centerpiece of these of these uh, probes that makes them a little bit different from standard weather instruments is this thing called a disdrometer, which is a device that um, it's kind of a kind of a weird name, but it's it's essentially a device that measures raindrop sizes um, or or hail or whatever happens to fall through it. Actually, it's got this beam of laser light that shines across this gap. Um, so this beam shines across, and then there's a photodiode array on the other side that collects the light. And anytime a particle falls through that, it occludes the beam a little bit, decreases the amount of light that is detected on the other side. From that information and a few assumptions, you can tell what size the particle was and how fast it was falling through the beam. And we basically use those to count the drops as they're falling over a period of time and size them. From that, we can build up uh, what's called a drop size distribution. As raindrops follow a certain distribution of sizes when they're falling on a storm, you got you got a range of them sizes. You got lots of small ones, uh, fewer medium sized ones, and, and even fewer large ones. Um, the large ones, largest ones, get up to about at most a little less than a centimeter in diameter. Anything bigger than that, and um, air, air uh, the air drag turbulence associated with that will break the drops up. Surface tension isn't strong enough to hold them together beyond that size. Um, but we, the reason why I'm doing this is to understand, if we understand how the, um, the size distribution of raindrops um, changes in these storms, we can learn something more about the, um, the physics of the, the clouds and the precipitation aloft that is creating these distributions. It'll tell us about the storm structure, um, the wind fields in an indirect way, um, which I can get to if you uh, talk about that if you want. It's a little bit, little bit esoteric, but we can also calculate things like evaporation rates because the raindrops simply fall through um, the air below the cloud base, which is um, the relative humidity is less than 100%. So the raindrops start evaporating, that cools the air off and that creates cooler outflow and downdrafts that spread out from underneath the storm. If you have all else being equal, rain that is spread out above, uh, water that's spread out of a, among a bunch of small drops relative to the same amount of water that's tied up in just a fewer larger drops, um, the, the, the batch of drops that are smaller will evaporate more quickly um, and cool off air faster, and that can have implications for the strength of that cold outflow in the storm. And tornadoes happen to not like that cold outflow. They tend to form in storms, all else being equal, that have warmer um, downdrafts, warmer outflow. So this is a, a long way of saying that the raindrop size distributions that we see can actually potentially affect um, tornado development in these storms, something that you may not have expected to, to think of. But we find these kind of connections in science a lot. And so that's one, that's one connection I'm trying to learn about. So those are the kinds of data that I like to collect, different, um, uh, um, you know, researchers will have different tools and, and instruments that they'll bring to bear on these storms to learn about other aspects of them as well. So like lightning detection and, and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's basically a, whenever you want to study these types of storms, you have to have a huge collaborative enterprise. No one group or team can, can do it by themselves. A very, it's a very coordinated effort. And when it is all working, it's a sight to behold when you're all out there communicating in real time with all these storms around and stuff. 
it's kind of amazing how that we can do as well as we do. With networks of weather stations going up kind of everywhere, it seems like a lot of businesses and uh, I know a lot of farms here in the Midwest have tornado uh, or not tornado uh, weather stations and they're tied into like networks. Mm -hmm. um, do you as a scientist, do you utilize some of that data also sometimes in yeah. what you're doing? Uh, I, I personally have not used like, you know, like networks of personal weather stations as for, mo for most of my stuff. They, those are available and quality controlled versions of those data sets are, as far as I know, um, are, are used um, in operations and also by lots of researchers. Um, so yeah, it is used by the meteorological community in general. Um, I haven't personally used that data for my own research, but um, it's something that I might in the future, I don't know. Okay, that's fair enough. It, 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 the next question uh, is now, so when a front comes through and it's always, it's really, the temperature drops super fast. Mm. And so is that because of what you're saying there, why go? Because of the evaporation that's happening of the water, is that primarily why the temperature drops so fast when a front comes through? Yeah, that's a good question. So it depends on what kind of front you're talking about. So if it's a run of the mill cold front, like the kind that you see on weather maps on like TV, um, those are what we call synoptic scale fronts. And so synoptic scale just simply means on the scale of, of uh, you know, size of a state to the size of the country. Um, so weather features on those scales include fronts, um, at least along the long dimension of the front. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, low pressure and high pressure systems, hurricanes, things like that are synoptic scale. Um, so a synoptic scale cold front, like what um, you're asking about, is basically marks the boundary between air masses of, from of different origins most of the time. So, I mean, I've simplified things a little bit, but the idea is like you get a cold front from the north. You're getting air that has been um, come from closer to the North Pole, from, you know, from Canada or whatever. So the air is there just colder and it's moving into warmer air. So that is not generally from um, rain evaporation. Um, evaporative cooling, um, but uh, on the on the on the other end of that scale, if you're talking about what's called a gust front um, coming out of a thunderstorm, that that air that that the temperature will drop behind um, behind that that kind of front it represents the leading edge of the cold air outflow, the cold pool we call it, of cool air underneath the storm. That that is on a very local scale tends to be. Um, and that is generated by the storm. That cold air is generated by evaporation of raindrops, also melting of hailstones. And, and, uh, and um, so, yes, in that sense, in that situation, that would be the reason why the air temperature drops. So it just depends on what, just a regular synoptic scale cold front, and no, but if, or, I mean, certainly if you have rain falling in it, that can help cool it off. But the, gen the basic reason, is not that, but for thunderstorm-induced cold outflow, it is. And so that would be something like when our weather pattern, like it's been here every day, it's highs in the 90s, lows in the 70s, and every day, and that's not changing for a while. So if there is a big thunderstorm that comes through and then it does feel a little cooler, that's like that that second thing you talked about. Is that correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. So you'll, you probably noticed this over the last um, several days. 
um, uh, where we've had storms develop nearby, even if the storm doesn't, if you, even if you don't get any rain, like in my house, we haven't gotten hardly any rain from these, just gotten unlucky until last night when we got some around yeah. in the morning. But um, even when you don't get any rain, um, you'll get those out, what we call outflow boundaries. The cool air will come out of the storm. It will, it will, it will sink in the downdraft from the storm. When it hits the ground, it, has, it can't pile its way through the ground, so it, it spreads out. Hmm. If you don't have much wind shear in the environment, then that air will just spread out in all directions, okay? And it will undercut the storm itself, and this, so it actually will kill off the storm, because then the storm, it's choking off its warm, moist air supply. But then that cool air will blast away, and you can get, if it passes you by, you'll feel the temperature drop, the wind change direction, and the wind speed pick up for a minute. Um, even if you're not going to get any rain from it, you'll get that cooler air that has been previously cooled off by the rain evaporation and so on. So, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, um, explain fronts. We haven't had anybody really explain fronts yet. I mean, if it, it, I know a common question is if it's a warm front, in a cold front, in there warm and cold on both sides, and how do you decide if it's called a warm or cold? Yeah, yeah, so that's a good question. Right, so a front, um, and getting back to what I was saying earlier, in a general case, depending on, no matter what the scale is, is a boundary between air masses of different characteristics. Um, and, and typically we're talking about temperature characteristics, but also could be uh, moisture and, and, and so on. So the boundary between, uh, on the large scale, boundary between different air masses that have different origins. So like a lot of times you'll get um, a cold front that will come, like I said, from the Arctic um, or the Pacific with cooler air that moves into a region of warmer, moister air that maybe has its origin from the, the, um, the tropical regions. Um, so you have these air masses that sometimes are labeled different things like maritime tropical, continental, which tends to be like warm, moist air from the from the tropical oceans and you have continental tropical, which is like dry desert air. Um, and then you have continental polar, which um, uh, tends to be, um, you know, cool air from like the north uh, over lands, you know, maritime polar, be like from the cool um, oceans and so on. Okay. And then Arctic sometimes is put in there a separate one. But um, anyway, those um, fronts, yeah, they're just boundaries between those air masses on that scale, on the synoptic scale. And so whether you call it a cold front or a warm front is simply which, which air mass is advancing. So if the cold air is advancing, then it's a cold front. The warm air is advancing, it's a warm front. If neither are, it's a stationary front. Um, and on the small scale, the gust fronts I was telling you about, the outflow boundaries, um, <clears throat> we don't typically call those cold or warm fronts. The dynamics of, how, of the structure of those tend to be somewhat different. It's, uh, it would, um, they tend to act more like what we call density currents on that scale, um, which um, if you've probably seen these, if you just Google density current and look at YouTube videos, you can see, like um, sometimes you'll see these as um, like turbulent, um, uh, muddy um, flows on inside of a, a water tank with like lots mm -hmm. of turbulence as the dense air, a dense water with uh, with um, dirt and soil and stuff blast through clear water. It's just like that, except we're talking about cold air that's undercutting and cutting through warmer air. Um, on a small scale, those, um, that, that tends to be the, uh, the behavior of those. 
So we don't really call them cold fronts, even though, I mean, you could because they are regions where you have cold, cooler air advancing into warmer air. Yeah. Are there any like combination of fronts that, that would really be ideal for what you would want to go out and study? So is there any like, um, like if you know you're getting a front from, like you were naming the different kinds of fronts, you said them, I forget the ones, maritime and continental. Yeah, yeah the air masses that, mm -hmm. that are about. Oh yeah, the air masses, sorry. Yeah, is there any combination of, of air masses that would really be ideal for making a supercell that would produce tornadoes? Yeah, yeah, so um, that's a good question. The, the very simplified answer is yes. Um, uh, it's a lot more complicated than sometimes you'll see people talk about, oh, tornadoes forming from clashing of cold and warm air masses. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's one of those cases that Einstein talked about as being so simple. You, you, everything should be made as simple as possible, right? But not simpler. And that's a case of where it's too simple. Because um, <laughs> if, if tornadoes and storms like that just formed from clashing of cold and warm air masses, they would happen all the time everywhere because that's always happening. Um, somewhere. Um, but what the the type of environment, let me just answer that question a little bit differently. The type of environment that is conducive um, for tornado development uh, and tornadic storm development tends to be an environment where you have a lot of warm, moist air in the low levels, the maritime tropical I was talking about, coming from sometimes the source from the Gulf of Mexico. Especially if we're talking about if we just focus our energies on, um, on the, this discussion on the, the United States, um, east of the Rocky Mountains, this that's the, happens to be the region uh, with the most frequency, highest frequency of tornadoes anywhere in the world. Um, and um, so you tend to have in the low levels the maritime tropical air mass with air moving from you know southeast to northwest. Okay, so low level southeasterlies we're talking about in the lowest you know couple kilometers. Of the, atmosphere. Above that, you tend to have um, drier, hot, hot air that's coming off of the, the deserts in the southwest. Those are used so from southwest, from the southwest. So you have southwesterly dry, warm air, um, continental tropical air that moves over the top of this um, warm, moist air coming from the Gulf because the higher the terrain up to the west is higher. So mm -hmm. as it blows over, moves east, it blows over the top of the of the warm moist air. Um, and then above that, you tend to have your strong jet stream westerlies of cool air way high up in the atmosphere, six kilometers and up. Um, and so what you get two things, you get uh, two main ingredients here. You get uh, in the temperature, um, the, what we call the thermodynamic profile, the temperature profile, you have a decrease in temperature with height, fairly rapid. Um, mm -hmm. And you have um, a lot of moisture in the low levels, trapped in low levels. Moisture is the fuel to produce the storm um, clouds. As the, that moisture rises, it the air cools off, reaches its dew point, the, the water vapor in the air condenses into clouds. Condensation is a heating process. Okay? Um, it heats up the air. That gives the air more, um, makes it more buoyant, makes it less dense than its surroundings that it's going through that's dry. And so it will, when it becomes less buoyant, or more buoyant, I'm sorry, less dense, it will rise faster, it will accelerate upward. That's the energy that generates the accelerating updrafts of these storms, comes from that moisture, okay, and the warmer air and the load levels. So that's the thermodynamic setup. You need that piece, that's one ingredient, okay, 
that that will power your storm updraft. Okay, every storm thunderstorm that you see um, cumulonimbus is buoyantly driven in that in that way, where the warm moist air near the ground is accelerating upward in the updraft. That's not enough for a tornado. As if it were, every thunderstorm would be producing tornadoes all the time. They don't. Most of them don't. The vast majority of thunderstorms don't produce tornadoes. So something else has to be going on. Um, and in fact, the key um, to uh, a type of thunderstorm that will be more likely to produce a tornado is the, the wind profile and how that wind profile behaves. We're talking about the wind profile in the atmosphere, um, the large scale atmosphere. So we're talking about as you go up, you get these horizontal winds from all different directions on a large scale. Um, the storm itself will have a wind um, structure that will be very complex. I'm talking about before even a storm develops, what does the wind profile look like? That's very important. Hmm. So I mentioned the southeasterlies and the low levels. So you tend to get the type of environment that favors tornadic storms in, the, in this part of the world tends to be southeasterly winds in the low levels um, turning to the southwest and then west as you go up and increasing in speed that whole time. And that that was what we call vertical shear, vertical shear of the horizontal wind. The wind is changing direction and it's also increasing in speed with height. So we get, that's wind shear. And if you think about if you were to have some giant paddle wheel stuck in the atmosphere on a horizontal axis, okay, and um, you set it up such that the winds uh, six kilometers up were blowing across the top of the paddle wheel, the winds down near the surface were blowing along the bottom, you could envision this as causing the paddle wheel to start to rotate because the winds above are stronger, so they're going to be pushing on the top harder than on the bottom. So the whole thing will start to rotate around a horizontal axis. So shear tends has this sense of what we call vorticity, which is a local measure of the rotational uh, rotation of the fluid. Doesn't mean that the fluid is actually rotating in a like a vortex. It means that there's that potential for for rotation. It's a local measure of of rotation. So that horizontal um, rotation um, gets, if a, when you have enough of that wind shear and you have a storm developing in that type of environment, the updraft will form because of that buoyant accelerating air. It will rise up from the low levels and push through the, 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 the air mass above it. So it will encounter stronger winds from different directions as that updraft rises. Okay. With me so far? Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. yeah. So that, because that updraft is encountering different winds from different directions as it moves upward, um, it will actually start to interact with that horizontal um, rotation and tilt it upward from a horizontal axis to a vertical. And it will intensify and stretch it out. Just like um, uh, if you, you know, the proverbial skater on a, figure skater on ice, yeah. pulling yeah. their arms in, spinning faster, that shear will be concentrated and turned into a vertical axis and produce a rotating updraft, which is the hallmark, the defining characteristic of a supercell thunderstorm. But in order to get that rotating updraft, you need to have the right profile of winds in the environment of the storm. Um, and so those are the two basic ingredients to get rotating thunderstorms, supercells. You need Strong instability, which is, um, that means warm, moist air underlying cooler air above it. 
and you need um, strong wind shear, strong vertical shear of the horizontal wind. Um, there are other thing factors that come into that that are, get a little bit more complicated, but I'll not get into that. But um, that gives you a rotating thunderstorm. That's still not enough, though, to get a tornado in a lot of cases. Because that rotation that you get tends to be in the middle part of the storm and the vertical. So like a, around three to six kilometers up in the storm is where you, from this mechanism, you will get the most rotation. Okay. In order to get a tornado, you need to get, somehow figure out how to get rotation down near the ground and much more concentrated. And that's where things get really complicated where we're still learning the details of that. Um, the gist of it is though, that we think that a, a downdraft um, on the backside of the storm called the rear flank downdraft is important and that it helps to transport some of that rotation from aloft, um, typically, and generate new horizontal rotation, um, which then gets concentrated near the ground and then pulled upward underneath the rotating updraft of the storm um, and producing a tornado. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, okay? Um, and it's a, it's a very complicated dance between large-scale patterns and very small-scale um, processes and individual thunderstorms. So that's the basic answer, long answer to your question, but there's a lot more to it. Well, I very, very much simplified as much as I can. So. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I don't think we'd understand if you went into the, <laughs> the other. <laughs> well, yeah, stop me if you have any questions about any of that point, because it, it takes a while to get to the kind of the conclusion there. You have to go through a lot of little steps. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it sounds like there's an awful lot of physics involved with studying a, a storm. Yep, that's it essentially is physics, right? Physics of fluids as applied to um, atmospheric flows on these different scales. Yep. Oh, that is very cool. And um, I, I'm assuming so for like high, if we get into the high school level, those kids. Uh, some important classes if they want to be someone who's studying storms down the road to be like physics and math, the math classes? Yes. Or was that the two most important for them at this point? Physics and math, lots of it. Yes, much as you can. Um, meteorology in general, not just for studying severe storms, but it just in general is very math intensive. So you need to learn, um, uh, you know, your linear algebra, your... Um, Calculus, um, differential equations, partial differential equations, those are all used extensively in meteorology. Um, so that's important to lay the foundation for that as soon as you can. Your high school student listening to this, you know, and you're interested in this field, know ahead of time that this is a math intensive one. Don't be afraid. Just um, the, the more you can, you can, uh, um, succeed in those classes, the better you'll place yourself, position yourself. Mm -hmm. um, not, so there's that. And then, of course, the physics classes. Um, basic physics is very important to understand that, uh, the, um, to get laid the foundation for um, meteorology and atmospheric uh, science. Also, increasingly, um, having an understanding of how to program um, and write and get know your way around scripting languages and and visualization and, and scientific computation is becoming increasingly important. We're we're trying to increase the exposure of students to that in our program here at Purdue. 
in, uh, in the undergraduate curriculum. But especially if you want to keep on going to a graduate or career or academic huh? career, these are very important to know how to use um, uh, the, the computational tools that are out there. Uh, we're hearing that from more and more scientists across the fields, the importance of understanding some programming. Right. And so, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, for sharing about storms with us and formation. And thanks for your yeah. advice to the high school kids with the uh, math, physics, and some programming. Yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you can all do it, you know, definitely go for it. Be be a proactive. Be motivated. That's solid advice there. Yes. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate you doing this. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you'll continue to hear about new and exciting STEM-related work being done. Tweet us questions, suggestions, and requests at Purdue SOS or email us at k12science at purdue.edu. Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up! Hammer down!